I'm Elliot Reeves, this is Rob Quorum, and you're watching The Elliot Reeves Show. Rob Quorum, how are you, my friend? I'm very well, how are you? <laughs> Absolutely awesome, it's brilliant to have you here at long last. Yeah, I've, it's been a interesting journey watching you, like, go through this so it's exciting to be part of it yeah well thank you so much thanks it's it's genuinely brilliant to to have you here mr punk fitness himself absolutely <laughs> so i mean as you know a, a way of introducing yourself um yeah maybe just if you kind of frame the the early part of your life the kind of you know the the forging of rob quorum as it were uh just to give a, a bit of an intro well, well i live and work in edinburgh now but i'm from the area to hebrides originally I'm from north uist so I grew up there my entire childhood up until leaving school. And that's a pretty pretty special place to grow up, really. Yeah. Um, kind of limited in some ways, but pretty amazing as well. So yeah, my path to what I do now began then. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of got recruited into an athletics club that a PE teacher started. Okay. And um, that was the first time that I can remember somebody telling me that I was good at something. <laughs> really? And that was like, that was it. I was hooked at that point. And um, so, yeah, so my childhood uh, was spent doing a lot of like cross country running. Mm -hmm. um, well, lots of outdoor activities, playing in fields and such like. Lots of watching television as well, because it's like pretty crazy weather up there too. <laughs> So, like, what what is there what is there to do up there? Because I, you know, I've never been as far up as that. Well, not a lot. <laughs> you kind of have to make your own entertainment. So, uh, um, yeah, growing up as kids, like you'd, um, your neighbors are even quite far away. So, like, really, you know, you'd be lucky if there was somebody near enough your own age and cycling distance to hang out with. So you'd kind of uh, chum about running about the fields and stuff, playing army or whatever you do. Um, and then when the weather's poor, you're just indoors watching TV or playing with toys and all that sort of thing. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so, yeah, you're kind of, it's kind of an isolated um, upbringing a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are areas where the, their village is more like condensed and um, populated. But for me, it was a very sort of sparse village. And uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of opportunity. We had a quite a, a large area of land. Mm -hmm. So we'd run about, build bases, these sorts of things. But you're kind of, you kind of left your own devices quite a lot. Like come home when you're hungry sort of deal, which is kind of very different to how my kids are, are growing up. Yeah. Um, and I think there's definitely like something like they're missing out on in that sense. Mm. Like um, I'm sure we'll get back to this Um like later on in the conversation, but recently yourself and myself were doing the, the Wim Hof experience. Mm. And, you know, it was a beautiful morning and we were like out in the fields uh, in a, next to a loch. And during that process, I kept thinking back to my childhood and like how, how connected I felt to the land. And that seems a bit weird, but like, you know, there's nothing but the land and the sea and the sky there. Yeah. So, you know, you're kind of anchored to it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So growing up in, in North US was, was pretty cool. I actually went to quite a big school considering um, how like light the population is really. Yeah. So it was about 400 in my school. Um, okay. Because everyone was getting bussed in from all um, corners of the um, North US, Benbecula and South US and little satellite islands off the other ends, which are now connected with causeways, Burnery and Eriske. Okay. So the kids from those areas, they stayed on site in school and in a hostel. Right. All week and then went home at the weekends again. Um, so yeah, when I got to high school, it was quite a, well, what seemed like a big school. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, just normal, normal school sort of stuff. <laughs> um, so like with, in terms of, sport and athletics i was um going to this athletics club and um learning my craft and training and cross country and then uh quite frequently leaving the island and going away for competitions that were quite going to inverness quite a lot and i never did incredibly well I competed at like district level but uh, never national level or anything like that but mm. it was just the experience of leaving the island and seeing something different 
mm-hmm. uh, being in the big smoke for a couple of nights and then I'm back to Ireland again. So yeah, it was a interesting childhood. In that yeah, sense. yeah, totally. It always fascinates me as to how a sort of solitary environment like that can sort of shape you or mold you as a person. Like, do you think you become more extroverted or introverted based on how the environment is? Both. Yeah. In different ways. <laughs> yeah. So um, in introverted sense, like it seemed like there was a lot of life going on elsewhere. Like, you know, listening to Radio 1 and hearing about, you know, clubbing culture and all these sorts of things and like Friday night radio and that kind of thing. You felt like you were very removed from that and missing out on something. And mm-hmm. then at the same time, um, so like when you, the opportunity came to go to the city, for me personally, it was an explosion of I must go and experience everything possible <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um <laughs> Which kind of to my downfall a little bit, but um, but also like, I guess like you know when the weather comes in, it feels like you're on a little rock, and like this rock is the only little microcosm of the planet, you know, because there's you know you've got the wind and the rain and the mist and everything seems to be kind of closed in. Yeah. So, which is weirdly comforting as well as. I guess, kind of, when the weather is crazy, it's a little bit scary as well. Yeah, I could imagine. So, yeah, it's kind of, that's kind of bonkers when I kind of, like, <laughs> yeah. say it out loud. <laughs> when was the first time that you, that you actually experienced city life? And what was that like? Uh, full time? Well, just, well, so what was your first ever impression of just going to a bigger city and experiencing that? The colours of traffic lights. <laughs> weirdly like if i was coming on holiday and going to say my dad's brothers my uncles in uh ayrshire mm-hmm. and we're like driving through glasgow or whatever yeah like the green of traffic lights seemed like a green that i'd never seen it was weird um so yeah that was quite quite a novelty and like and mcdonald's he always yeah. wanted to go to a mcdonald's and tick that box and um, mcdonald's and woolworth woolworth's for toys and cds R.I.P. Woolworths. <laughs> <laughs> when did you when did you officially move into the city then? Um nineteen ninety nine. Um nineteen ninety nine. So I went from um uh, sixth year, finished sixth year in school and then went to Glasgow University. Um or attempted to. Uh <laughs> so I moved to Glasgow to the West End of Glasgow and was there for, for two years. Um and that was my induction into city life full-time but i'd been going out visiting going to stay with my cousin and stuff mm-hmm. who was already in glasgow every chance i got and i've been thinking about this recently there was like a definite urge for getting away and leaving the island life and now sort of um conversely like contrastingly like years later i feel kind of drawn back to it i don't know if i could go back and make a, a living doing what i'm doing mm-hmm but there's definitely a pull to that kind of existence um and i've got more of a healthy respect for everyone that's there mm-hmm. doing what they do and um making ends meet and multiple jobs because a lot of people have crofts as well as day jobs mm. so whether they're working the schools work for the council or, or fishermen then they have also got a croft where they're, where they're growing crops and have uh, livestock etc so people are kind of multitaskers um and and it's quite peaceful yeah and yeah i'm kind of drawn to a more peaceful yeah yeah existence. yeah i could imagine i mean like I sp- I've sp- spoken to a lot of people who i think predominantly are from the city and so it really appeals to just not be in the city because it's kind of feels often chaotic or claustrophobic mm. or you know you can't escape just people and stuff <laughs> so, Absolutely. So, so getting away from that for a bit uh yeah like particularly somewhere like canada you know yeah. where it's just like i think it's uh, rogan actually who talks about areas of canada some of those beautiful parts of maybe like montreal or whatever where it's just like so remote yeah just a, a really primitive existence yeah <laughs> i think um like glasgow was quite claustrophobic and yeah i was a quite a chaotic stage in my life if i'm honest and i wasn't achieving what i wanted to achieve glasgow wouldn't help me in that regard no 
Um, and so I kind of bailed on that. And um, mm -hmm. when I came to Edinburgh, I felt a bit more, I could breathe a bit easier because you can see the sea, you can see like the hills, mm -hmm. like Arthur's seat, you can see the Pentlands. Yeah. Um, you can see the fourth. So there's, you know, where you can escape if you need to. Um, and recently, uh, when I've been training a lot more, um, doing like running and uh, cycling and stuff, and just being back out in nature again, um, more at peace and I feel what I felt back home mm. a lot more. Um, so take that as a lesson for anybody. Get yourself outside and yeah, get into nature if you're not doing it already. Yeah, yeah. And why, I mean, do you think that's just because it's, you know, easier on the senses? Um, I think it probably runs deeper than that. Mm -hmm. I think we need it. I think we need grounding. And I think um, we need a bit of freedom freedom of movement, freedom of thought. Mm. Um, and yeah, just things to be a bit more simple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like meditation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna ask you this actually, we might as well just bring it up now. Do you have a specific meditation practice? Not something that's as regular as it should be. Okay. Um, so I teach, I teach body balance, um, which is a pre-choreographed yoga type class. Right. And that has a, guided meditation at the end so i'm teaching the meditation to the class so i'm mm -hmm. speaking but i find during that time i can feel you know something the benefit of that meditation as well mm -hmm. almost like what i'm speaking is in some way kind of self-hypnosis mm. um and i mentioned before that we've we recently did the wim hof training mm -hmm. and that was spectacular um and i wish i had the discipline to be doing that every day but i've not i've not taken that up yet okay um so i listen to a lot of podcasts when i'm driving when i'm training uh, when i'm cooking when i'm working from home um and i find that quite immersive mm -hmm. um and i don't know if you'd class that as meditation but it's certainly it's escapism yeah in, in a way i guess yeah you're kind of phased out of reality and it, going into thought which you may not have gone into otherwise yeah yeah i like that what other experiences have you had of accessing um altered states of consciousness or uh you know transcendental states um legally <laughs> <laughs> is <laughs> your answer uh yeah i was kind of i was involved in the clubbing scene for a while and i guess you're if you're gonna partake that in full form then you're gonna end up in some altered states uh so yeah so through music <laughs> shall we say um so yeah definitely down that sort of road mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of talk these days about psychedelics for um, personal growth. Yeah. Um, and it's not something I've, you know, got into at this stage of my life. Mm -hmm. But I definitely see merit in it. Okay. And not in so much that it's escapism or whatever, but in so much that it's probably been used by humans in tribal societies for a very long time mm -hmm. and getting out of your own way mm. um, and looking at yourself from an objective point of view and seeing your flaws perhaps um i think there's there's definitely merit in that mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of pressure um in society to to be scared to approach that because of the legal ramifications and yeah. professional ramifications. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to talk yourself into a corner where you're unemployable and um, you know, facing like legal <laughs> legal consequences. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. But <laughs> but that says something about society, um when there's other narcotics which are fully taxable and acceptable. Yeah. Um like alcohol mm -hmm. 
um, and I don't drink anymore. Um, but that was a big part of my life as well um, for a long, long time. And I think that's quite destructive, potentially more destructive than some of these um, mind altering, more spiritual type practices. Yeah. And then there's the whole recreational drug aspect as well, which is probably just as destructive, if not more destructive than alcohol too. Yeah. Yeah. This is a sort of two part question. Um, so firstly, based on your opinions on the, I guess the experiences of the motives of other people, why do you think that people take drugs generally? But also in terms of your own experiences and particularly with alcohol, like why, what was your motivation to drink? Why did you drink? I think people try to um, do either of those things, take drugs, take alcohol, possibly to cover up pain, to mask pain, mm -hmm. um, or to cope with something that they just can't cope with, that they're, they have a block with or whatever. <laughs> death yeah <laughs> existential you know dread yeah maybe um <laughs> grief um mm. loss mm -hmm. fear um all of these things mm -hmm. i think addiction in in any form is more of uh, self-medication than um a sickness so I think if you get trapped in there, then rather than, you know, discriminate, discriminating against somebody for, you know, doing a deed uh, like taking drugs or, or uh, drinking too much, then it should be addressed. Like, why are they doing that? What's the deeper reason? What's the pain? Um, what's going wrong? And I think that needs to, needs to come first. And for me, um, with alcohol, it was pretty much that. It was like, I just noticed that it wasn't helping my life in any way. Mm -hmm. And I felt tied to it, um, that it was something that had to be done on a habitual basis, uh, on a daily basis. And there was almost anxiety if, if it didn't. So like, not like before work or anything like that or during the day or anything like that, but as a ritual of switching off, mm -hmm. relaxing and managing whatever challenges I'd had that day or whatever pain was in my life, yeah. then that, that had to be there. And if it wasn't, then I wasn't at ease. And so um, after many, many years, it just seemed that this was a, a reoccurring cycle. And if things were going wrong in my life, like jobs or relationships or, or what have you, that, you know, it was evident that there was more going on than just bad luck. Yeah. So I had to take steps to stop mm -hmm. it. What was your greatest source of pain? Um... I don't know. I think maybe fear. People probably wouldn't think that I have anxiety, but I do. Mm. Um, like, you know, not feeling comfortable or right in situations, not feeling enough in situations. Mm. But um, even though I've done some some cool things in my life, um, I've struggled with that a little bit. So, and then, yeah, just whatever, whether it's kind of loneliness or um, not being understood or whatever, there was, there was something that was, that was triggered from quite a young age. And I found that alcohol was much in the same way as rich role that we've um, talked off air about. Yeah, yeah. Um, that he got into drinking um, as a way to overcome uh, social awkwardness and to and to feel um, more outgoing. I think I did the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it just stuck as a habit. Mm -hmm. So um, eventually 
I got rid of that about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, yeah, I feel better. I think I sleep better. Um, the thing is, when if you are covering something with a medication, no matter what it is, and you take away the medication, the problem is still there. Yeah. So then you have to start doing the internal work hmm. to like, you know, mend those wounds and move on stronger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know um, Rich uh, Rule, who you speak of, like he got massively into ultra running and, um, you know, a lot of the sort of intense uh, physical endurance stuff as a means of really addressing that stuff. Yeah. What, what, tools or you know if you were to give advice to anybody who's suffering from you know addiction or any kind of you know mental ailment so to speak what would you suggest as a as a means of um addressing it or or sort of coping um find an outlet in terms of whether it's exercise Mm -hmm. or whatever but there's always a danger of replacing one addiction for another which is interesting but i sometimes wonder whether if you're substituting a positive thing for a negative thing that ultimately it's still a it's still a victory yeah you know if you got addicted to running you know it's it's unlikely that that can be destructive i think it can be socially destructive yeah yeah i I agree with that um you know if you're fanatical to the point where it's inhibiting Personal relationships. Personal relationships, commitments, all Uh these sorts of things. I think, Um, yeah, that could possibly... I need need to go for a run now, man. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just do push-ups while I'm waiting. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, if if I was to give somebody advice, I Mm -hmm. think... I think... And this comes to my opinion on health as a whole, Mm -hmm. and which is the entire ethos of what I'm about as punk fitness as rob quorum mm-hmm. and i think you need movement i think you need clean nutrition mm-hmm. um i think you need connection yeah um and yeah you need to look into yourself you need some inner strength and personal growth to so whatever you need to do about that and yeah mindset so um whether that comes from some kind of organized help um and there's lots of outlets that can um help people with that Mm -hmm. but yeah getting a support structure getting getting a structure in general getting some goals um and starting small and that's that goes the same for somebody trying to embark on their health and wellness journey or overcoming addiction for yeah, example yeah. is just that's a health and wellness journey as well isn't it mm. so mm. it's the same thing totally i was just thinking like when i'm listening to you speaking i left the window very slightly ajar because it can get quite hot with the light on and you can hear the birds tweeting and stuff so thinking if people are watching or listening they can probably hear that it's quite nice yeah quite liking it yeah bit of nature in the room you know absolutely <laughs> can't, can't complain with that there's there's a lot of things i mean like this conversation is is really um i'm really enjoying it it's a very like natural kind of flowing conversation without too much structure because sometimes that can get in the way of good chat um but i'm gonna ask you actually about uh you worked as a fireman or you you were working you know doing that as a uh a, a career alongside your uh your kind of fitness work what was that like and what was your relationship with you know, like potentially dying and doing a job. Um, the potentially dying during a doing a job thing didn't even weigh into it, really. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's some kind of reckless hero complex or whatever. <laughs> but um, so I was a retained firefighter with the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service, and um, I was a part time job. Um, my brother is a retained firefighter back in North US where, where I grew up. Uh, so is my uncle, Callum. And um, I was, I first joined in Galashiels. I was living in the borders and then transferred to West Linton. Um, during that time, my day job was in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a manager at Nuffield Health. Um, but 
Whereas all the other people in the crew were um, lived and worked in the village. So there, it was a little bit um, a little bit tough for me to to work like that because you have to commit quite a lot of hours mm-hmm. um, to the job. And to be honest, it's it's a very selfless thing, but it's an amazing thing as well. You learn incredible skills and you're doing an incredibly rewarding uh, role. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably wouldn't realize this, but I think something like 75% of Scotland is covered by retained firefighters. So these are people that are normal day jobs from butchers to teachers to crofters to whatever mm-hmm. and they're wearing a little pager uh, circa 1992 <laughs> <laughs> and um so when a an emergency goes through the um control room mm-hmm. then if the that particular fire station is getting activated and dispatched then your pager goes off and rattles and goes crazy and you just blitz it to the fire station yeah um, and then get in your kit and jump in the fire engine the crew commander has got a, the turnout sheet and tells you where you're going and what you're doing Jeez. so yeah it's quite intense um and so yeah you most of scotland most of the uk uh, outside of the major cities is covered this way mm-hmm. and even in the most remote places they're volunteers so they don't even get paid um so it's yeah it's quite remarkable it's not what you'd expect mm-hmm. and then when you're all in your uniform and you're at a car crash or what have you and there's multiple appliances there then your average person looking at the fire team can't tell who's whole time who's a mm-hmm. full-time firefighter and who's a joiner <laughs> um and you're training and your attitude and your you got to show up you know what i mean and and do it and that's quite intense and mm-hmm. um but wonderful mm-hmm. uh, i have tried to do it as a full-time career and not made it through the selection process um several times and and that's when you've been a retained firefighter and you most people who are retained firefighters have had or do have aspirations to do it whole time mm-hmm. so it's it's can be quite soul destroying and frustrating that there's not a more direct path um especially yeah. if you've had prior training exactly um but for whatever reason they decide that you're just in the hat with everybody else mm-hmm. and you're on your own merits at that particular moment in time mm. which is fair enough um yeah. so so yeah I've, I've, pur- I've pursued it for a career even th- uh, this year um applying for a uh, whole time and at the airport as well um and i even got offered a job and then um it was the job was no longer available by the time i was ready to go train so that was quite disappointing mm-hmm. but i mean in terms of what it what it feels like it's it's pretty amazing like um uh fires are quite rare rarer than you think um just because of modern building materials and such like um so i went to a couple of barn fires um um quite a few road traffic accidents where you're cutting the roof off cars and um and but you train for this like the yeah you train every week uh a drill night and you go you every um month or so there's some um more intensive weekend courses as well as your initial courses where you're away for a fortnight and then many weekends after that how many call outs do you reckon you responded to in total oh between 50 and 100 maybe yeah i mean quite often they're benign quite often they're what's called afas and that's um automated fire alarm so like nursing homes and things like that and somebody's burnt the toast and uh <laughs> yeah i think yeah. i was responsible for a few of those in, the ho- in halls of residence <laughs> yeah. um but no I was, it was quite wonderful but at the same time um i met with a few challenges just because of um commitments i was on a 
um, on a contract where 75% of 75% contract. So the hundred percent contract was 120 hours a week commitment. So I was on a 75% contract. So that's 80 hours. And that's on top of my full-time job, which my employer told me that he expected uh, 50 plus hours out of me. Um, no. Cause I was a department manager, uh, head of department. Um, and yeah. And so there's commuting time from West Linton to Edinburgh as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there was, there was some conflict there sometimes and some uh, conflict of interest uh, and such like. And also, so if you use up your hours, then you're tied to the village and you know, you've got no scope for leaving. Um, and there's a lot of, there's, a, there's quite a bit of pressure um, to, to keep the appliance on the run, obviously, because mm -hmm. people are relying on you if something goes wrong. Um, so there's a what if acts aspect all the time. Mm. And so if you've run down all your hours and you've got no more leeway and there's, or if you, even if you do have hours, but there's, we're on minimum crew. Mm -hmm. Um, when I say we, we were, I was, mm -hmm. if it was minimum crew it by, if you had booked off, then you would put the appliance off the run. And so that would put people at risk that would let down other crew members, um, and so, um, so on and so forth. So it's quite a lot of pressure. So hats off to oh, completely the men and women that, that do this because hundred percent they sacrifice quite a lot yeah and, and their families sacrifice quite a lot and um it's by no means for the money mm -hmm. um although you you know there is some you know financial compensation but you know you're not gonna retire in it um, yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah my my mom was uh, grew up one of seven she lived in a fire station oh wow her her dad was a fireman yeah so so I, like I, I can't relate firsthand to it but obviously i've heard about what that experience was like um but you're right man it's so uh selfless it's such a selfless job and if people are doing it unremunerated as well like mm. that is crazy in terms of you know, wanting to help other people like you know not thinking about yourself and thinking about others so i think that's awesome what is punk fitness and where did it all start Started in here. <laughs> it started. Uh, it was a visualization. It started through there. Uh, it started uh, you helped me build the website. <laughs> That's right. Um, so Punk Fitness is my business, my brand. Um, and it's, I guess, an extension of my attitude and leanings in life in terms of like why it's called that. So like punk rock alternative. So I'm, I've never been one to conform really. So mm -hmm. I think my attitudes to health and fitness are a little bit uh, non-conformist as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why punk fitness. So at the moment, punk fitness is my personal training business, um, which I do down in Leith um, at Elysium, uh, Elysium Gym, which is an independent gym and um i also teach group exercise in in several places like pedal house and westwoods here in edinburgh um and places gym so i'm teaching classes to folk and under my punk fitness banner but for that establishment um and i've gone into online coaching a little bit mm -hmm. um i've got a couple of online clients at the moment but that's something i want to expand on and then try and develop it into a more a bigger business by um, making more specific uh, coaching products and sort of coaching pathways for specific things so triathlon coaching wow um uh, a wellness uh just more of a health and wellness sort of pathway mm -hmm. um as well as um uh, an exercise and nutrition sort of regime or concept for busy mums and dads okay and busy professionals so a condensed condensed health and fitness um and also uh more of a physique type aspect mm -hmm. 
guys want to have bigger shoulders, bigger arms, and uh, ladies want better curves, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So those sort of um, coaching products. And, um, and I'm, it's not quite kicked off yet, but I've, um, I'm looking to start working with, with kids as well. I'm reading some outdoor boot camps and combining some of these, getting back to nature with health and fitness things that we discussed mm -hmm. already. And it's in its early stages also, but I've been working with um, businesses in Edinburgh too. So more of a sort of corporate health. Um, so yeah, it's, I've been working independently or as a um, self-employed mm -hmm. person for about 18 months now. And it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Except, <laughs> you know, it's it's been hard going because I had a baby in that time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was probably not the wisest thing to do going self-employed just as the baby was about to be born. But I mean, <laughs> little Tristan. Um, but at the same time, it's meant that I've been there um, because I'm not working full-time hours. I'm not committed to the fire service anymore. So I've been able to enjoy, enjoy that time with him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, um, it's been building up for uh, a year and a half and it's been, there's been some hard points and learning curves, mm -hmm. but it's, it's going in the direction I want to go take it in. So that's awesome. Yeah. I like it. It's a good segue into the next part because I'm going to ask you about um, you're wearing an Edinburgh Children's Hospital charity top. <laughs> so uh, I guess the, the most logical question I can ask you is why are you wearing that? So this is um, I'm doing a Ironman uh, triathlon in just over two weeks. Uh, and Kel Keltman. 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 So a Scottish uh, triathlon. Um, and I'm, I'm raising money for the sick kids hospital, uh, in doing so. So, uh, we had a, a frightening experience with, with little Tristan, uh, that, um, he was very unsettled one night, um, which is quite uncharacteristic. He was a really good sleeper, um, when he was a very young baby, not so much now. <laughs> <laughs> he wakes up regularly every night. <laughs> yeah. But, um. Like there was no sort of colic type pain um, with him generally. Um, and then this one night he was just very, very upset, unsettled and in distress and um, had been sick and, and what have you. And then um, we were up most of the night and then very early in the morning, I went to change him and he had a, a nappy full of blood and um, yeah, mess. Oh, and that was terrifying. He was only four or five months uh, old at the time. And so wasted no time, uh, jumped in the car, dragged his poor sleepy older brother, um, Ollie as well, and we, um, Kasha and myself, we all went to the sick kids. Um, and they were like, yeah, we think we know what it is, like straight off the bat, but we want to do some checks. And then, so um, it turned out he had something called intersusception, Okay. Which is a condition, very rare condition, where your uh, small intestine gets um, inflamed, the nodes get inflamed due to viral infection or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then the large intestine basically grabs it and thinks it's like food mass and, oh, uh, so and it starts pull, pulls it inside it. itself. Oh my God. Sort of um, like, a, like a snake swallowing something. Yeah. And then so... Now the tissues and the bowel are in um, inside each other, and there's a, a risk of um, circulation getting cut off and um, necrosis and sepsis and all these sorts of horrible things mm -hmm. and lots of problems. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a very, very surreal, intense experience. Um, for us, because they allowed us to be there the whole time because it was the best way to, to comfort him. So we're holding him down, singing him songs in his ear, and um, stroking him. And all these medical staff are whizzing around us um, in a chaotic but coordinated way. Mm -hmm. And um, the upshot was that he, their, 
the measures that they took to try and reverse it without surgery um, weren't successful, but they were um, unlikely that they were going to be. So he had to go for surgery. And so this whole process happened within uh, the course of half a day. And so we were in there about seven o'clock in the morning, I think. And by early evening, dinner time, he was uh, getting keyhole. Um, and so if the keyhole didn't work, they'd have to do open surgery. So they basically went in and teased the, um, the bowel apart. Um, and thankfully, he's been perfect ever since. Jeez. How, was, how would you describe the level of treatment and care that he got? Um, absolutely world-class. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just everything from like the skill level to uh, their communication, keeping us in the loop and having us involved and like not being um, shut out and worrying. Obviously, we were worrying, but um, I think with a level of of knowing and knowledge and um, it eases the burden slightly and uh, and also gives us a level of trust in, in what they're doing mm -hmm. uh, because we've been briefed in um, you know very very deep detail. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, incredible yeah. and and we're just one family and he's just one little boy and mm -hmm. we've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids going through there mm. um and yeah and it, the medical system always needs more funding yeah so anything and i think on a personal level if by virtue of the skills of people and the grace of whatever mm. that uh, you know we got through this mm. then we've got something to give back yeah. you know we've got a, a debt to be paid karmic, karmic yeah debt. yeah man I, I, I totally get that so you're now doing kelp man in order to raise funds in order to help the, the, sick uh, kids. the yeah specifically yeah. the pediatric surgical unit okay um and strangely in one of my classes i mean edinburgh's a small place but one of the surgeons goes to my classes um, and I, I mentioned it to her and um, she's like, yeah, the equipment that was used on your son was funded by the sick kids charity. And I'm like, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, had the charity not been there, then perhaps the, you know, the that equipment or mm -hmm. the newest version of that equipment um, might not have been at hand. Yeah. Yeah. So to pay it forward hmm. got to do this <laughs> so so what's kelp man then what does that entail so it's a triathlon so it's a swim bike run mm -hmm. uh it's iron like um in so much of the it's a long course triathlon uh type distance so um iron man um the m dot sort of symbol that you see tattooed on calves of um <laughs> chiseled folk um that have done done the races that's that's a, a brand and a copyright so you have to be careful using the term iron man um but it's um a hard long triathlon so it consists of a 3.4 kilometer sea swim followed by a 202 kilometer cycle <laughs> uh, followed by a 42 kilometer run which is a full marathon um, depending on how you get on in your day, um, there's a mountain checkpoint at halfway point on the run or thereabouts halfway. And if you meet that checkpoint in under 11 hours and you look like you're in the condition to continue, um, you get access to the high course. So you go over two Monroes, two Monroe peaks on Ben A. So the whole thing's up in Wester Ross, uh, Torridon and Shieldegg and, and the like. Uh, and if you miss that window, then you get routed on a uh, lower course, but you're still off-road, out of contact, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, you've got a, a hard run ahead of you. I've, I know you've done it before. Yeah. How many times have you done it? So I've done it four times. You've done it four times? Jeez, I was thinking a couple of times. So um, 
if you get on the the mountain course you fin and you finish you're a blue t-shirt finisher okay so that's kind of prestigious uh and if you finish on the lower course you're a white t-shirt finisher so i was there for the first year the first event and uh i've done three others after that so i got a blue t-shirt on the first year uh which i also did for charity and um white t-shirts on the other on the other years so it's 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 a pretty spectacular event it's part of a world series called the x tri series okay so um it started with the norseman where uh, they sw uh, they jump off a boat and swim back into a fjord and then have a crazy cycle and then the uh the run basically goes up to the top of a cliffs like you you'd see somebody skydiving off or whatever mm -hmm. base, base jumping off um and then there's the swiss man there's now i think there's some kind of alaska man there's like all the i don't know create places like patagonia i don't know crazy yeah, places yeah. uh i might be speaking at a turn there <laughs> but um there's like these events have popped up all over the world so they're different in so much that they're you're against the elements and the terrain as well yeah and uh, not just the the distance so how much of it is you know physical ability versus just out and out mental fortitude there's got to be a lot of mental fortitude and then there needs to be sufficient um physical ability to get yourself round. Mm -hmm. um but there's definitely uh, the mental game so think david goggins sort of scenario going yeah. on you know you've gotta you've gotta want to do it and have drive inside you because it's a uh, it's pretty grueling so like the the whole race the um, it's it's an incredible race because it's also a team event even though there's only one competitor mm -hmm. you need an entire support team mm -hmm. um because it's a self-supported cycle so you need a car or, or van or whatever and driver uh, and uh they're not allowed to you're not allowed to draft them so they can they can basically they you're rendezvousing with them whenever at a pre-arranged times or uh, whatever is your mm. schedule you're free to organize that yourself um to replace your water to replace your food um and then wish you well and so it's a kind of slingshot effect on the bike where you're you're meeting your team they're going away you're meeting your team they're going away okay um and then you need a support runner for either the whole um of the run or at the very least the final part from the mountain checkpoint onwards mm -hmm. whether you're on the high course or the low course because you've had a long day to that point and um you know you might not be making the best decisions so um I mean it's very it's safe there's risk but there's as much safety as can be put into one of these things um we spoke about the fire service and the the volunteer fire service um the whole well many of the members of the community are recruited into this event like the population of wester ross swells for this weekend um because of all the teams and their families and whatever else um You've got members of the community from the swim exit uh, to um, the village hall in Torridon at the end of the race where they're making food and serving food to all the tired competitors as they're coming in. Mm. Um, the mountain rescue volunteers, which is another crazy volunteer um, um, service in, in the UK. Uh, they're all out on Benny. Okay. which is the the crazy mountain it's it's absolutely incredible looking mountain um <laughs> and so they're on there during the race you know should anything go wrong mm -hmm. and they're giving up their time for nothing mm. um and there's a big uh crew race crew as well um so yeah it's it's a special event because there's it's a community it's a it's a tribe it's a family it's, yeah it's it's elemental um it's very much against nature it's an um one of the most magical parts of the uk um wester ross and torridon and shield egg yeah and um yeah and they make it even you know even more 
special by doing like things like they've got a it's a Celtic tri spiral for the um the logo. Mm-hmm. They have a burning effigy of this um at the start of the That's swim. Cool. And like yeah, the fire torches <laughs> down into the water. Uh in the first year they just had a piper, which was uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. But now they've got a, a crazy drumming band as well and kilts and long hair <laughs> and beards like with like extras from from Braveheart. <laughs> um, yeah. Um and so yeah, it's it's weird. It's like it's like it's tribal it's like mm-hmm. it's ancient yeah uh, um it's like it's you know the like a rite of passage that they used to make like young boys do in in villages and and what have you in like hunter-gatherer cultures or whatever like yeah. you know it's but it's yeah it's open to crazy people in rubber suits and with bikes <laughs> yeah. crazy people but you, you've had uh you've had your share of challenges in the lead up as well right yeah um i had uh basically i tore my acl um in my Jeez. knee um so when was that that was the injury was um uh, in december um 2017 mm-hmm. so we both have a love for mixed martial arts. Mm. Um, I've dabbled in a couple of events. I was mm-hmm. training for my third event and I was doing light sparring and chucked in a move that I had no business chucking. <laughs> so, trying, to, trying to throw some spinning shit. Yeah, so I was trying to do a <laughs> jump spinning roundhouse kick. Um, but for whatever reason, pulled it short because it was no just light contact sparring trying to prep another fighter who was getting ready for a closer fight and and it was cold i landed on on this leg Mm -hmm. was pirouetting kind of out of it Mm -hmm. spinning out of it and something just seemed to go i felt the bones on my in my knee joint just move across each other in a way that i'd never felt before and i just collapsed in a heap um and it took a while to diagnose. Uh, I worked in a facility that had access to physios and things. And so um, I saw them and because I was moving around, everybody thought it was a, a lesser injury. Yeah. Um, but it kept, my leg kept buckling essentially when I was teaching classes. Um, I went for an audition to teach at Westwoods and I was teaching a staff class and I was holding a warrior two yoga pose and the, on my straight leg, the diagonal leg, it just folded inwards and I fell to the floor. They still gave me the job. <laughs> I must have done all right to that point. Um, so, uh, yeah, eventually I went private. No, I went, I got it scanned. Um, I got it checked by the NHS. Mm-hmm. They said, yeah, I reckon it's classic ACL. Um, so got it scanned, got it confirmed, went private. Um, Kasha, my partner, uh, thankfully she had uh, medical insurance through um, through her work, and mm-hmm. I was I was on it. So I went to Spire here in Edinburgh, and within a couple of weeks, I was arranged for for surgery. So they actually took two of the uh, tendons from my hamstrings on the inside of my leg. Uh, so you've got um, several hamstring tendons attaching to your leg. They've taken two of them. They've scraped them, cleaned them, cut them, put them together in a ply of four, sew them together, and they've stuck that inside my knee. Oh! So they came in through the front and then went through the bone, attached it with a wee screw and a wee plate. And so I've got my, I've got, a graft in my knee that comes from myself. And now these muscles here are no longer attached to there, but apparently you don't need them. I was a bit shocked myself. When like they, inner quads muscle? No, the, um, so it's the, the hamstrings. Oh, okay, so oh, under your eye, okay, I got you. So because there's fascia and it's holding everything together, when the muscles contract, mm-hmm. it still pulls on, on the knee. Okay. It's just not pulling at the same point okay so i had to go through um quite a lot of physiotherapy um touch wood it's been it's been all right yeah uh, i mean actually when i'm training now i have more stiffness 
and a wee bit of an ache in the other leg. (laughs) (laughs) So this one's been absolutely great. Um, It took a while to get there. Lots of strength and conditioning, lots of physio. Mm -hmm. Um, And I only started running um, a couple of months ago. So it's been a late start prepping for this event. Uh, But it's gone good. That's awesome. Well, if anyone's watching, listening, or whatever, um, I'll put some sort of link to the the FundMe page. So, yeah, people should uh, definitely look to help. Yeah. Because I think it's a great cause. It's on Everyday Hero. Okay. Um, So if you search Everyday Hero, Rob Keltman, you'll find me. Love it. But yeah, it's a crazy event. Um, um, The swim starts at 5 o'clock in the morning um and takes a takes about an hour so you're like the sun's coming up and everyone wades into the water with the these crazy drummers and the piper and the burning celtic tri-spiral and um the klaxon goes the air horn goes even and that's it you're Mm. you're away so you're you're swimming across uh it can be like a mill pond um like flat uh, sea loch trying to avoid getting stung by jellyfish like, yeah I, last time i was there was 2017 and i got stung in the mouth oh. um and oh. so that i kept me awake though. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get to the other side um so you're you're swimming into the village of seal day uh and there's you know massive entourage on the uh on the shore waiting to for everyone to come in, uh, the teams and families and some villagers that might have just rolled out of the pub. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're helped up onto the, the slipway and uh, into transition, uh, the transition area. And you're, uh, this is one of the only triathlons that your team is allowed to help you uh, get out your wetsuit and get into your bike kit because you're a wee bit frozen. Yeah. Um, yeah. It can be like as low as nine degrees in the water um and even though it's on midsummer's day um or the closest saturday and then that's it you're off on the bike and uh, it's about six to eight hours on the bike depending on your speed and uh, (laughs) it's a long time to be in the saddle i just can't imagine what that's actually like like one of my big goals actually is to swim the firth of fourth from you know edinburgh to fife uh the distance of the bridge mm. like i'd love to do that um but you know when we did that wim hof exercise uh a few weeks back like that water is cold cold yeah. like do, do people swim skins or is it all suits oh no it's all suits yeah um, do you think you need that to do yeah, it for sure really yeah yeah i don't think you'd last no no um the first years that I did it, I wore like regular pool. Like, like everyone gets a, a swimming cap with your number on it and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I never wore uh, a skull cap underneath it for the first few years. I just wore like three like rubber swimming caps. Yeah. And um, and you're allowed to wear gloves and booties, uh, like surfer style. Yeah. And I didn't for the first few years. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I, I've got a crazy injury here. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, which was crashing a bike in a triathlon. So that your pinky doesn't fold right or yeah. doesn't sit right. So like if I'm swimming and I'm getting cold and numb, yeah. then it basically just balls up. Eef. So yeah, wearing some wearing some gloves is a little bit better. And then so you're out on the bike, long day on the bike. It's a nice way to see the countryside. And yeah. then um, you get into uh, transition two and um yeah basically put your shoes on and start running um and then so at that time of year as well in that area the midges are just biblical <laughs> so your team is like covered in <laughs> in net um you're not standing around still for very long so it's all right but your your poor team are getting it getting it tight yeah yeah um and it's like the the run starts off um going up quite a steep hill through like fire track and forest and then uh comes over the top um and then you're down in big long long valley mm-hmm. um and then into the checkpoint 
on the other side on the Torridon Road. And then you've got this big looming um, mountain ahead of you. And depending on how your day's gone so far, you're either going up it or you're going around the side of it and behind another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with your buddy runner, you've, there's minimum kit that you have to carry. Um, everything from a mobile phone to foil blankets to mm -hmm. um, like waterproof gear, uh, some food, all that sort of stuff. So it's intense. Yeah. So my finishing time has been uh, around about 16 hours, plus or minus, depending on the year. Um, so it's a long, it's a long day out. It is. So I thought, yeah, I thought it was a sufficient challenge for piquing people's interest and, and getting them to support the sick kids. Yeah, hospital. definitely, definitely. Sweet. Well, kudos for doing that. Yeah, I think it needs to be done. I think you gotta pay your dues. <laughs> So we've got what, like, basically ten minutes left, because uh, I know you've got to watch your time. But we started when we were um, chatting beforehand, and I always seem to get onto this topic because it's one of the big ones. But like religion and spirituality, and God, uh, just to finish on something deep for a bit, of, <laughs> for a bit of for a bit of intrigue. Um, what's your what's your overall view on um, you know religion and spirituality? Um, growing up where I grew up you're kind of heavily exposed to it in both productive ways and maybe less productive ways. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's quite a, um, I wouldn't say there's a divide, but there's a definite distinct sort of area that's uh, like the lower end of South, like South US is, is uh, Roman Catholic and mm -hmm. North US is Protestant and uh, Presbyterian in some places. And, so there was a little bit of nonsense at school around that football teams and, and what have you. So mm -hmm. that experience uh, kind of turned me off religion. My mom is uh, a spiritual person and has faith. Uh, my dad, who's no longer with us, I, I, was, um, I lost him just before the first Keltman in, in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and I was raising money in, in his honor back then for Macmillan Cancer Support um he was very much an atheist and so that it was interesting growing up having the contrast um and so thinking about history and science and then thinking about spirituality and faith as well and then also um north uist is steeped in uh, neolithic um arch uh, archaeology so there's like stone circles uh, chambered cairns, uh, standing stones, and what have you. And I was really, really drawn to these things. I used to get out an OSGS map of North US and then go and find these places by myself. Um, and so, yeah, something about the like early cultures and uh, what they were doing for um, spiritual practice um, was appealing to me. Mm -hmm. So I think bringing all of these things together, I think where I sit now is in a place of kind of universal spiritualism. And mm -hmm. so there's, I think, perhaps that world religions are all kind of talking about the same sort of stuff yeah. through different contexts. Mm -hmm. And people have got dogmatically focused yeah. um, on their color on their tribe on their team and and they're forgetting the bigger picture um and so i feel increasingly more drawn to that but in a, in a quite a broad way mm -hmm. sort of acceptance and inner inner work mm -hmm. for sort of personal growth and development um and it's great because i think that's gives you scope for going wherever you want to take it so what does the word god mean to you uh dog backwards <laughs> no uh i think yeah i think god is a a term that could be exchanged for gaia um or you know whatever um i think it's just a, a frame of reference mm -hmm. um a la a word from a language 
And I think there's like, there's every language has got a word for water. I think every religion has got a, a word for God. Um, and so I think it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Um, more people should think like this. Yeah, well, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you in terms of your view on it. Um, and each to their own, you know, it's not my position or yours or anyone's really to tell somebody else how, you know, what, what their God should look like or do or whatever it is. So I'm very much with you. I think, um, whatever people can tap into, to be better, kinder to themselves and better, kinder to everybody else and, um, make their experience in, in this life. And if there's one beyond it, then yeah make it the best you can absolutely i think that's a good note to to wrap things up on well man it's been awesome having you here i've loved uh, chatting with you it's been really really good fun it's been my pleasure you enjoyed it yeah really much yeah this is my first ever podcast is it really yeah yeah so it's been something i've wanted to uh, get involved in yeah for sure yeah i don't know what's been holding me back but it seems less daunting now. Yeah, oh, definitely. And a quick shout out to our tribe shift brothers and sisters. Absolutely. Much love to them. And uh, yeah. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where, where can they find you? Uh, they can get me through my website, which is uh, punkfitness.co.uk. Um, and on social media, uh, it's Facebook, um, Punk Fitness. And on Instagram, uh, Punk Fitness UK. Punk Fitness UK. See love me there. Click on the link and donate. (laughs) Okay, my friends. Well, Rob, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And uh, yeah, best of luck with the the kelp manning. I'll keep you posted. (laughs) Can you track me live online? (laughs) I'll do that. I'll do that. Thank you. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) 